Best in Show, the podcast that looks at the best episode of each TV series I own in its entirety, based on the voting of IMDb users. Every two weeks, release a new episode with rotating guest hosts. This week's host is no stranger to listeners who listen to comic book podcasts, for sure. He's also showed up at a few other venues. So welcome aboard, Mr. John Suntress. What's happening, man? Thanks for having me. Oh, thanks for coming aboard. I'm excited to talk about our uh, subject tonight. Oh, yes. As those of you heard in the announcement podcast last week, this week it's Kolchak the Night Stalker, with particular attention to episode 11, Horror in the Heights. Now, this was a series that ran for one season following actually two made-for-TV movies, as was the trend in the 70s, to see if movies kick it off, and then one complete season that ran from 1974 into early 1975. I remember it well. I was nine years old when this show was on the air, and nine and ten. And uh, it blew my mind. It was uh, really like one of the... It's funny, when uh, Dan Curtis, the creator of the show, mm-hmm. uh, also uh, was uh, very important to uh, uh, Dark Shadows. And uh, I would say a good six or seven years before that, Dark Shadows used to scare the hell out of me. As, as a very little kid. And uh, I steeled up for the Night Stalker. I saw those first uh, two uh, made-for-TV movies. And, um, you know, they, they were written by Richard Matheson, a wonderful science fiction mm-hmm. writer. In fact, you and I talked about that this week, preparing yep. for this uh, episode. And, uh, you know, it's a, it's a great concept. And, you know, I, I, I'll let you talk about uh, its influence on, on modern television. But, right. uh, yeah, it was uh, – honestly, as a, as a viewer in 73 and 74 – uh, it totally appealed to kids and uh, even was on in syndication on CBS on Friday nights for several years as well. Um, just a just a great series. And it was a shame that it only lasted the one season. Yeah, I would agree with that completely. I've only seen a couple of episodes here. This is one that it predates me. I was born <laughs> in 77. So I picked it up knowing only that it was a major influence on the X-Files, Chris Carter said mm-hmm. this is primary influence, and that Walmart had the complete series for 20 bucks. Nice. That's fantastic. I was telling you, and it's so funny, uh, I'm like, I'm pretty sure it's on Netflix, because it had been for years. You told me, mm-hmm. obviously, that uh, Canadian Netflix and the U.S. Netflix are different uh, yeah. and can be. Um, and then when I did check on Netflix, it was gone. There are episodes on YouTube. Uh, it's unfortunate, though, because... It's almost like buying a, a bootleg <laughs> video yeah. back in the uh, 80s or 90s because uh, it's certainly off-center. And I, I will confess that uh, not owning the uh, box set as yourself, I did rewatch via YouTube. But truly, this has been one of my go-to shows since, you know, 40-plus years ago when I first watched it. So uh, I, I'm very familiar with the series. It's it's very much like, you know, watching a Bugs Bunny cartoon a lot of times. So Yeah, sometimes it is, and it's... Like you're saying, there's influence that lasts. I suspect one of the reasons it got pulled 
is because the per episode budget strikes me as being a little bit higher than other shows I've seen from the era. Oh, that's interesting. Um, I do know one a, a big reason was you know Darren McGavin was I believe already in his forties when he when he made this show, and it was such a physical show that he was breaking down. In fact, I remember the Sci-Fi Channel running it back in its mm-hmm. early days, and him pretty much saying in a you know. Uh, kind of go-to video uh, piece in the same way they do it on Doctor Who and stuff like that. That he's like, I love the character. It was great writing, but I just physically couldn't do it anymore. That could very well be a, a big impact, especially since the IMDb list his birthday is May seventh, twenty-two, which had made him fifty or fifty-two when this was filmed. Wow. Okay, there you go. I like I said, I thought he was in his forties, and I mean, yeah, really, he could pass for it. Well, yeah, and and that doesn't surprise me that he was born born that early because he w- had early uh, uh, cop procedural detective uh, TV shows in the in the fifties as well. I think I want to say he was Mike Hammer on TV. He was from nineteen fifty eight to nineteen fifty nine. Ah, there you go. Yoko, Yoko Chips comes through. Nice going, man. Yep, uh, <laughs> Captain Gray Holden on Riverboat. Wow, that's crazy. He's in Jerry Lewis's first solo film, uh, The Delicate Delinquent. The first movie he made after splitting with Dean Martin, and he's, uh, you know, I guess the straight man because you know he plays a cop and uh, Jerry's kind of a you know a, a teenager gone wrong, but of course gone goofy wrong, and uh, you know Darren McGavin is the beat cop that kind of helps him uh, get out of the gangs and stuff like that. Oh yeah, he was Casey in Crime Photographer. He's big gig franchise Casey Crime Photographer. That even goes back to old time radio and stuff. One of my favorite old time radio shows. So. Uh, Alfred Hitchcock Presents. There's actually an episode of Alfred Hitchcock Presents called The Cheney Vaz that has fallen to the public domain because of issues with the way it was registered for copyright. They didn't do it properly. Sure. sure. And he's in that episode. Crazy. That's cool. Yeah. I can, I can do a Kolshak imitation if, if you, you can stand it. Well, I can stand most of yours. You're quite good at those. It, 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 it gives you the gist of the show. It's him arguing with a police captain and basically saying, you're trying to tell me there's an Aztec mummy running around the city and the police have nothing to say about it? That's that's pretty much every show. You know, just insert different monster, insert the whatever action the monster is doing. And not, again, I'm not saying that in a bad way. It was a great procedural that was unique because of the fact that it, the point of view from the main character, and I'll let you describe Carl Kolschak, but uh, but yeah, and also uh, the complications were always a little bit different than Dragnet or Adam-12 or some of the other shows of, of the era. They are. So one more point, just I'm thinking most people <laughs> my generation probably wouldn't know everything that we just listed him from. So let's put it down oh, as the yeah, father from a Christmas story. That's great. Truly is truly his most famous role. You're absolutely right. Yeah, he's father in the Christmas story, and uh, IMDb lists him as Brian Madison and Billy Madison, so I'm guessing he's the dad right. there, too. Yes, he is. Of course he's Billy Madison's father. That's true. Oh, and, you know, there's, there's a million other things. Of course, too, uh, Carter used him as a recurring character in The X-Files. I forget yeah. his name, but he was not Kolshak, but was like a former agent. Yeah, he was uh, Arthur Dales, the person who originally opened the X-Files within the FBI. There you go. And Kolchak's distinctive attire was actually (laughs) used in the uh, event series that just came out, Episode 3, the comedic one with Mulder and Scully meet the were-monster. The guy from Flight on the Concords, and I forget his name, but he was the manager of the Flight on the Concords. Yeah. Yeah, he was dressed exactly like Carl Kolchak. Seersucker suit, uh, like 
honestly, I think almost nurses kind of tennis shoes and uh, a great uh, uh, straw hat. And uh, yeah, this I mean, literally just like he looked like he walked off a, you know, a cruise ship or a, a Charleston Scouse uh, golf course, Charleston, South Carolina. But yeah, just really weird. And also, you know, Jeff Rice, the creator, um, he was so vivid, I think, in, in the description of, of Kolchak in his original novel. Yeah, I, I just what a signature character. I, I just think it really it, it's so great. And well, I'll wait till later and say what well, I'll say it now because it's on my mind. Moonstone Books, if you don't know has been writing graphic novels with Kolshak, short story collections with Kolshak, and original novels. And um, they they made a deal with Jeff Rice, who still retains the rights to the character, uh, to authorize these new uh, novels and short stories. And some of the best uh, short story writers and comic book uh, writers are, are doing really great Carl Kolshak stories. So if you're a Night Stalker fan or become one because of our conversation and watching the episode... Uh, there's lots of uh, stuff beyond that first season uh, in books to uh, to enjoy. Oh, and that's good because there's, uh, like I said, I've only had a taste of it, but with that taste, I'm betting that by the time it's done, one season won't feel like enough for me. There you go. Because it's, I mean, I'm, I don't just like the stories and the acting, and this has great acting. We can get into the, the guest stars in a bit. I also pay a lot of attention to the production and just how well put together the series is that's why mm-hmm. i have such low tolerance for soap operas because i don't care how much talent you have you can't put together something great on that schedule it's about getting them out when you're doing an hour a day five days a week sure but this one there's a lot of handheld camera work before steady cam so you know sometimes it's a little bit shakier than others depending on you know which street they've got the cameraman walking backwards down you've got uh, some difficult lighting to do and in an era like this where you've got a lot of location shooting it looks like there's a mix of actual chicago architecture blended in with some la location shooting i would uh, agree with it yes yes a lot of a lot of you know the uh establishing shots where they would give the credits for the specific episode there's a lot of stock footage they shot mcgavin driving around chicago and again living in chicago as i do what a what an example of a time capsule of what Chicago looked like in 1972 and 73. Yeah. So and and those TV movies as well are definitely you know have a lot of on location stuff going on in in Las Vegas for the first one and Seattle for the second. And both yeah. of those, by the way, again on YouTube and at least in those cases they might be kind of blur. You know your typical kind of watching a, a movie an unauthorized movie on YouTube. But uh, outside of that, they look fine and you know it's good enough. And I think it's good enough yeah. to, to appreciate the aesthetic. What you said, too, about the, the, the close-ups that they did and, and, and using um, handheld cameras to, to kind of show the point of view of a, of a monster a lot of times to continue the suspense mm-hmm. of not knowing what the monster or whatever phenomenon was that was causing the murders and stuff. You know, it's, it's good horror kind of technique that, that worked as well on television. And, yeah, like you said, they, they – I, I be, do you have numbers on the budget in terms of that it was an expensive show? I, I don't have that. What I do know is that, at least on the DVD, you could see some artifacts that are they can only occur when you're recording on film and not on video. Oh, sure. And when you've got a lot of handheld stuff in the 70s, a lot of it went to video, which reduces the, the picture quality because it's lighter, it's cheaper, it's easier to carry. They didn't go that route. So the people putting this together said, no, it's going to be at least this good. We want it to look this good. If I may, too, you know, Universal, that was why they were so 
adept at television production, really going again back to the 50s. There's a great documentary, Lou Wasserman, The Man Who Ran Universal, and they spell out really that beyond films, Universal was this huge powerhouse in television producing a ton of shows. And the government really did make them restructure the company, cut back in some ways. But still, even after the cutback, there there is so much universal product as far as being produced. And they were a movie factory. So they, they did have access to the best stuff and the best technicians. Yeah, and I used to work in a movie theater, so I worked with them on the advertising and stuff. And we've seen things on that end. Universal, they plan to make their money in the long-term syndication and home video. They will actually take a smaller cut of the box office ticket for a new release movie than other studios will. Because they're not planning to recover costs in theaters. They're planning to do it on DVD. Interesting. That's why they released the $30 million Serenity based on the Firefly TV show in September. When the highest grossing movie ever released in September up to that point only made $28 million. They knew they weren't going to get it back in theaters. But they looked at the DVD sales of the series and said, no, we'll recoup that. Let's do it. That's interesting. I uh, Yeah. Uh, well, I could go on about Serenity. But we'll get back to Kolshak. The, uh, the, and... and um, they had the top television writers of the day as well. David Chase has written a Kolshak episode. Um, yeah. You know, there's there there are good credits on this entire series uh, as far as writers and TV directors. And um, again, it was a strong premise, good procedural. Should we describe it? Uh, you know, the he worked for the yeah. INS, this uh, tabloid news uh, paper, not as salacious maybe as the Inquirer, but also by the same token, definitely uh, more sensational. <laughs> than uh, your average, you know, newspapers of the day. Uh, yeah. So there was already mm -hmm. a discredit to him coming from that news service. Oh, yeah. Especially just you could, like I said, having not seen the pilot in years, haven't seen anything recently, I didn't pick up on the details of that. What did come through clear, when he's writing his stories, he's saying, put this out on the wire. Maybe someone will pick it up even as a joke. So they don't have their own printing press here. Right. Stories, well, they're but not the paper. Yeah. Right. They're a service that that other papers mm -hmm. can pick up, yes or no. And again, um, would you know, kind of be the blood and guts um, news kind of coverage, and certainly being in Chicago as well. So he was on a crime beat, but he would find himself uh, facing the supernatural and uh, off planet in, in a couple cases, uh, bizarre murders or, or or you know some sort of mystery, and. Um, yeah, he he would see it face hand, but of course, you know, everyone in the in the regular world, nobody would believe any of this. And uh, it's funny, and especially in this uh, age of fake news uh, <laughs> or, or reportings of such, yeah. that uh, this is a different kind of fake news. And also, uh, he was always accused of fake news because most of his stories were about uh, vampires killing hookers mm -hmm. in Las Vegas or. You know, um, uh, uh, an ancient goddess coming and stealing the youth of, of young men. Uh, I mean, just, you know, crazy stuff. And it's great. It's it's fun monster stuff with wrapped in a police procedural kind of setting. But instead, your your uh, detective is this investigative reporter. And he's funny. He's just legitimately funny because oh, yeah. he's this, you know, guy that uh, this is the last job he could get. He He probably did. 20 years earlier, work for a, a top newspaper. And I think Rice has intimated that, uh, if not in his original novel, then certainly to these other writers that have uh, picked up since and everything. So, yeah, I, I, Carl Kolschak was a, once a great journalist and now is, you know, doing the best he can, but also knows the tricks to get information 
and it's always fun to watch him go from suspect to witness uh, or whomever and, and question them. Uh, and, and they're always funny little interludes. Uh, it's, it's such a good show. It really is a great balance of suspense, cop procedural and comedy. It is. And there's actually a perfect example of him getting that information from someone in, in this episode, he's talking to Mr. It was Lane Marriott. I can't remember exactly the character's name here. Yeah. Lane Marriott played by Murray Matheson. Who you might recognize from love is a many splendid thing. Banachek, <laughs> the twilight zone movie. What was he in the Twilight Zone movie? Did you look up the credit? Uh, Mr. Agee from segment number two. Oh, so it must have been Kick the Can. Yeah. Right? Yeah, I think that's okay. segment number two. Okay. Yeah. Interesting. Um, no, well, again, Universal, Richard Anderson, who was Oscar Goldman on The Six Million Dollar Man and, you know, yep. million character roles, I got to talk to him at a San Diego Comic Con, and he was under contract at Universal for a couple decades before Six Million Dollar Man, and possibly even during the run of the regular series, you know, watch any Universal show and Richard Anderson will pop up. And, I mean, that's the thing. They had this wonderful group of people that were under contract for decades and were these wonderful character actors that will come in and give you, you know, three minutes of, of funny or suspense or whatever they needed. Yeah, and that was it here. Like this, Lane Marriott's in this show for a couple of minutes. He's the exposition guy. But they didn't just write the exposition guy. He's a guy who's got a sense of humor that's a little off kilter. Nobody appreciates it. But Kolchak recognizes it and plays into it and uses that to get more information out of this guy and get more cooperation. I suppose we should like also describe the, the episode itself, horror, horror in the Heights. Yeah, we probably should. Basically, people are dying, often elderly people, in a predominantly Jewish neighborhood. And fingers are being pointed at a man who's just opened a Hindu restaurant. Who seems to be putting swastikas on uh, on the uh, alley walls. And uh, again, obviously Jewish neighborhoods, so they, they, they feel these are hate crimes. And and this is the new guy in town, so go on. Yeah, so he's getting a little bit scapegoated, but there is definitely something worth investigating there. And Kolchak is brought in and does follow it, and he realizes after doing his own research that the Nazis didn't create the swastika, they stole it from other cultures, and it started as a protection symbol in the Hindu religion. So when he puts it together that way, he's going, okay, this guy's probably trying to protect them from something. It turns out, eventually, it's a creature that can cloud its true appearance in your mind and appear as someone you trust to get close enough yep. to you to eat you in a way that apparently looks like you've been devoured by a, a horde of rats. Yeah, it was pretty gro pretty gruesome. Uh, the bear, as they would refer to it in Twilight Zone, the, the actual monster, uh, they were smart and kind of just did it over his shoulder. You rarely uh, saw – I mean, I, well, I, we want people to watch it. Yeah. I, I, you know, uh, you can imagine uh, that things work out. But uh, it is it is interesting and, again, adds to the mystery, as we said, with handheld cameras, uh, the perception of the monster approaching uh, its victim – and, uh, you know, he's ready for lunch, <laughs> whereas the victim sees the monster. And as you said, it's people that they trust. It, it, the, the opening scene with uh, um, uh, several great uh, character actors, Benny Rubin and uh, Phil Silvers, of course, who has a prominent role oh, yeah. in, the, in the episode. And Lou, what's his name? The other little guy um, probably up there. I, I was going to go to IMDb myself and give yeah. you the credit. but. Another great old character actor. I'll look him up in a second. But um, I've got it open if you remember the character name. Yeah, go for, well, go for the. 
I don't know if do they have it in order of appearance or no? No, it's the order that they're listed in the credits. So we've got Darren yeah, Gavin, yeah, Simon Oakland as his boss at the paper. Tony, Tony Vincenzo. Yeah. Then Phil <laughs> Silvers, Murray Matheson, Abraham Sofer as the gentleman who opened the Hindu restaurant. Yep. Uh, Benny Rubin as Buck Feynman. One of the card players. Security guy are at the meat market where they're having their uh, illegal. You know, it's on Friday night. They're not. They're not supposed to gamble on Friday night. But these old guys are, you know, what the hell? Oh, yeah. So. He, and he's been known to lose as much as 75 cents in a single night. <laughs> it's, you know, well, we'll get into Phil Silvers in a second. But, uh, yeah, I mean, I, like you said, you send me the link and I'll, I'll, I'll find the guy's name, the character actor I'm talking about. But there's so many people, like we said before, that are these great character actors that are just um, just wonderful to come in for their for their three minutes. And uh, is it? Oh, and that's not Barry Gordon. I'm, I'm, Barry Gordon, by the way, a wonderful character actor, uh, did a couple of Barney Millers, was on uh, Fish as a co-star of uh, Abe Vigoda's and was uh, the social worker that helped them with their half house uh, for kids. And he's got a two-minute part as as a waiter in this. Yeah, he's, he's a waiter at the Hindu restaurant and is actually a Jewish man uh, trying to look as, as Middle Eastern as he possibly can and then kind of breaks character while he's... Uh, talking to to Kolshak. Where the hell's this guy? This is driving me nuts. But again, for my generation, we probably know Barry Gordon best as the voice of Donatello and Bebop in the 1987 Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles cartoon. That's very good. Is it Herb? Is it, it's not Herb Vigran. Oh, by the way, no, but Herb Herb Vigran in and uh, is plays Mr. Goldstein, and he and his wife uh, see someone they trust. It's uh, it's their son, I believe. Well, actually, do they see different people? I forget. The cops see different people. I know that. Yeah, the, the the officers see different people. We just see those two go around the corner. Oh, we don't see who they see. They, we got to know who they possibly see. I can't remember now. But uh, they do see They do see some friend. But Herb Vigran was on a million Adventures of Superman episodes as a bad guy. Uh, and is also in a great Brady Bunch episode where uh, they've got green stamps. And they're trying to t- send in their trading stamps and... Uh, get something uh, either uh, I, I forget what the I think the girls want a hair dryer and the boys want like I don't know what kind of game or whatever the girls win lady I'm closed leave me alone but he uh, her vigrant is literally I got a great plot to finish this Superman and of course things didn't go his way but if you saw him you'd know him. bushy eyebrows great great character actor oh yeah and that's true of so many of these people if you listen to the mission log podcast when they run through the guest stars on Star Trek and they're listing off what shows these people have appeared on, Kolchak comes up like every two or three episodes. <laughs> That's cool. Ned Glass, by the way, is the man that I was struggling with. Ned Glass, again, another actor that is in everything. Dick Van Dyke and uh, North by Northwest, the Hitchcock movie. He's he's the man that won't give uh, Cary Grant a train ticket. Okay. Uh, your eyes sensitive? Yes, they're sensitive to questions. That guy. <laughs> yeah, I see he's in Charade as well, which is another great one. Yes, he's got a major part in Charade. I'm glad you mentioned that. That's fantastic. Yeah. That's the thing. It opens up with this great card game between uh, those guys, you know, and and uh, that's where things start. And then uh, Phil Silvers becomes a major part of the show, uh, and it's almost like watching, you know, Sergeant Bilko in his retirement years. So that's kind of fun. It's It was very – being shot in, uh, in L.A. aside – 
the characteristics of where the thing happened and everything, it was a very Chicago story, and I give them credit. Now, the, the neighborhood that they do, Roosevelt Heights. What it's called. Is it Roosevelt Heights? It was Roosevelt Heights. Okay, it makes sense. Well, we're in the Heights. Uh, yeah, that's that's a fictitious neighborhood. But it easily could have been Skokie, Illinois. It could have been, uh, you know, area, areas on, on the north side uh, around Devon Avenue that was a, a predominantly Jewish area in the on the north side of the Chicago city. Um, could have been a couple south uh, uh, suburbs, south neighborhoods and south suburbs as well. Um, so no, it, it it made sense for uh, for the locale. Yeah, I've only been to Chicago the once. That was before they opened up what I hear is a pretty good comic shop in Skokie. But... <laughs> this is true. Oh yeah, comics. That's right. Yeah, was, yeah, about a year before that. Too funny. I was there. So excellent, man. Yeah, they they've really got it. I mean. Ned Glass, like you we were just talking about, he's got 226 credits to his name. Yeah. <laughs> well, that's the thing. If you want to, like, kind of Weasley little second story, man, he's Barney Miller. I just saw a Barney Miller episode with Ned Glass. Just a, a naturally funny guy. And that's the thing. A lot of times on Kolshak, they would get comedy character actors because, again, it's it's goofy. And, of course, it's goofy. And, of course, even the you know the regular citizens aren't used to having a zombie in their neighborhood or a killer android or some of the or a, a moss uh, creature. So yeah, I mean it's 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 that same kind of deadpan attitude that you see in a, in a show like Barney Miller in terms of just everyone's just weary and wants to get back to their normal world. And who knows from a corpse with no blood? Okay, thank you. You know, I mean, just crazy stuff like that. It was fantastic. It is, and to have this sort of old guard of actors is perfect for this episode. They're, it is there for entertainment. Like you said, it is funny. They, Kolchak's sense of humor is one of the things that Chris Carter stole and just handed to Mulder in the X-Files, except Kolchak tells the jokes more often. But it's <laughs> very much the same style of dry wit. Yeah. Oh, totally. Absolutely. Yeah, and one of the things that comes through in this episode, there's a very clear message that just because people are getting old that doesn't mean they're not still productive and useful and worth your respect. We get that with Ellen, who's, you know, at the INS, and she's writing a novel in her spare time. It's something that he says flat out with the police when he's dealing with them earlier in the episode, and it's, you know, he has to tell his boss, you know, getting old doesn't automatically mean senility. Absolutely. And when you said that, you know, he felt his age was one of the things that was making this show hard, I wonder if that's part of why that was written into this episode. It doesn't get preachy, but the message is there. Well, that I'm not sure of. We should point out, too, that uh, his yeah his co-reporter uh, friend, uh, Emily, I believe she has the, the Lovelorn column uh, for the INS service. Yeah, she's you know kind of this grandmotherly figure, but she's going out on dates and stuff, and you're absolutely right. No, she she shows that she's not done. Also, of course, the, the Hindu hunter, uh, who... Is, is near the end of his own life, but clearly has been stalking and killing these monsters since he was a young boy. So that's kind of cool that there is this kind of almost old Hindu master fighter, that hunter that is out there and everything. And uh, I, I think, uh, yeah, again, his character is really neat as well. Yeah, and like I said, it, it's all there. Like, I mean, one of the letters, again, it must have been pushing that, what the standards and practices would let them get away with in 1974. But Emily was trying to give medical advice to someone, and he's talking about, well, maybe try hormones, and, you know, good luck, he's 73. <laughs> so there's some implication of what he needs help with. 
And this is the gentleman who comes to pick Emily up for her date at the end of the episode. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> it's uh, the only thing that uh, compared to other Kolchak episodes, the only area where it was a little weak was honestly the police that questioned Kolchak about this and his and just his attitude towards them, because in other episodes, uh, obviously the the captain or whoever's in charge of the detectives for that particular case is always, you know, the the central, uh, I guess, uh, authority figure. And, you know, Kolchak Buck's authority, whether it's Vincenzo or the police. And there's always in other episodes great interplay between a police captain or a top investigator in Kolchak. There's a whole uh, the, the citizen doesn't need to know about this. And so there's a lot of cover ups because these things are so shocking and no one would believe them anyway. And Kolchak's the only one that has. Uh, evidence, whether it's photographs or, or uh, a recording or something. And a lot of times police will accidentally, uh, you know, take his camera away or break his film or break his recorder in some fashion. So yeah. that's kind of missing from this episode. But mm-hmm. it's more than made up for with uh, the other elderly characters that he uh, has to talk to to find out the and get to the bottom of the story. Yeah, I wonder if that's not really there because the the officer he has the most interaction with is the one who keeps showing up and he's right. usually the youngest officer in the crew. So I wonder if they're doing that, you know, the ageism thing in reverse where, you know, he may be young and on the job doesn't mean he knows everything. He doesn't have the experience. Or maybe there were, maybe there might've been a little scene that ended up on the cutting room floor or something that, that did kind of show that contrast even more, you know, prominently. I'm not sure. Yeah. It's a little tough here. Cause it's TV shows that old. You don't often have access to deleted scenes or, commentaries or things like that definitely not there's a uh stephen cannell who did a lot of universal television has an incredible oral uh history interview at the archive of american television if you search for that you might find highlights on youtube itself but you've really got to dig and i always say google search because I'm, I'm such a big fan of this collection of interviews go to the archive of american television and really for the last 25 years or so they have been archiving uh, face-to-face interviews with great creators and technicians of television, actors, writers, cameramen, literally, sound men. Every, every department is covered and great stories about the creation of television. Canal talks specifically about having a movie and, and also or having a television play of a certain length. And uh, his mentor was Roy Huggins, who created The uh, Fugitive and – uh, Maverick and uh, he and Cannell worked together on Rockford Files, and he said that like uh, Huggins would take a, a teleplay that was maybe you know three minutes too long and just had the eye to cut scenes down and get to the the basics and stuff of what they needed. And he said he called it peeling the onion and just layer after layer and being able to get it down or to extend a sh- uh, a, uh, a show to a proper length that he would just add at the beginning during credits, extend that opening credit scene of, you know, the, the star's car running around. And I'm sure there are examples of that in Kolchak of, I mean, I know for a fact there are of him just driving around the city, whether it's day or night, uh, while the credits might be rolling and to get an extra 30 seconds or stuff, you know, just add that kind of stock footage to make it the proper length. Yeah. I'm, I can see that. Cause this, one of the things that I, I noticed in this part of the format is that there's some voiceover exposition from Kolchak. And I can imagine them 
you know, tinkering with how flowery his language is today to add or subtract 20 or 30 seconds from the runtime. Yep. In this episode and keep it tight. Or connect scenes that without that wouldn't work. And maybe <laughs> they did have to cut something and cover it with a voiceover and stuff. No, you're absolutely right. Yeah. Like, you know, cut out a two minute scene where he goes to the library to learn something and replace it with 20 seconds of after a quick trip to the library, I learned blah, 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 which led me here. Yep. Yep. Exactly. No. And, you know, he just has. He's got a great voice. I mean, I, you know, mm -hmm. and God, I'm so glad you mentioned Christmas Story because that shows you how funny he can be, obviously. But that's he really had that combination of pulling. First of all, like like a William Shatner can can, you know, stand in front of a ridiculous looking monster and and make you scared. It certainly made this nine year old scared back in the day. But he was great in dramatic scenes. He's he had great comic timing. He had that uh, again. Phil Silver's that Sergeant Bilko kind of con man uh, thing he could pull in a scene. He he really could do it all. And and mm -hmm. I, honestly, uh, this made me a lifelong Darren McGavin fan after first seeing the Night Stalker. Oh, I'm sure because it's. I mean, he he could make it convincing when the thing he's facing off on. When you compare him to William Shatner, I think this monster is probably comparable in quality to the salt-sucking monster from the original Star Trek. <laughs> and I thought of, like, uh, on Nightmare of uh, 10,000 Feet, the uh, the Twilight Zone with uh, Shatner, yeah. you know, the, the 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 original gremlin on the wing and stuff. Yeah, it's a, it, like like I said, I know it was either Twilight Zone or Night Galley where, where they would refer to it as the bear. And that's just, you know, the big scary thing, whatever it is that mm -hmm. week. So uh, it's like the big bad one, you know, that all started with Buffy and everything. I, by the way, I, I thought of another uh, Darren McGavin credit and being such a baseball movie fan. Shame on me. He's the big gambler that Robert Redford contends with in uh, The Natural. OK. So. Yeah. Oh, so that, and and uh, <laughs> just to clear it up for the, the younger listeners, when Lost referred to the bear on the island, that was a reference. <laughs> that was an actual bear. <laughs> That's true. So, no, you know, um, they tried to do Kolshak again in uh, about uh, 10 years ago, actually. I think it was around 2007. Yep. And, in fact, with a ex with an X-Files writer, Frank Spotnitz, if I'm saying his name right. Yeah, uh, yeah Spotnitz, the, uh, yeah, the Night Stalker, that series ran from 2005 to 2006. It's Jeff Rice's other TV credit. Like I said, he wrote the novel this is based on. And uh, Frank Spotnitz was actually the... Expos producer who developed this for television. So yes. Now, in in, in fairness, uh, Spotnitz recently also does uh, Man in the High Castle uh, for for Amazon uh, Television and uh, or Amazon Prime, I guess, and uh, that's certainly an amazing show. I was not a fan of uh, the reboot. I, I, you know, some things just don't work, and also it could be because I have to say, as a lifelong Fantasy Island fan. I, at first, the Malcolm McDowell reboot, I wasn't crazy about it. But I have to say, upon reflection, uh, I appreciate the differences now in a way that I didn't back then uh, as far as uh, the presentation of the show. And and I would say that the new Night Stalker kind of fell into the same uh, category. Also, the, in the Carl Kolschak was too pretty in the new one. Yeah, I mean, this is the thing, Stuart man. Stuart Townsend, you know? which is – Stuart Townsend, I mean, it's not – I don't have anything against him, but I get nothing of a Darren McGavin vibe off of him. Well, yeah. So that only works if they're going in a very new direction, at which point I say, do you really want to call it Night Stalker, or do you want to just say, this is another show that inspired me, that was inspired by Kolchak, and just call it original? I, ha I have to confess, I haven't seen 
uh, Denzel Washington's Equalizer. But I, I do believe that it came from the same inspiration um, as the original, and or maybe not. Maybe it's just title alone. Uh, I have a better example. When Ving Rhames, they decided Ving Rhames should be Kojak, or when Blair Underwood was chosen to be Ironside. And, and shame on me, it sounds like I'm, I'm being anti-black, and I certainly don't mean to sound that way. But uh, don't make pretty people. That's what I'm really anti, is anti-pretty people uh, being cast in roles that were made for elderly men or even elderly women. I don't want to see uh um god let's let's think of some I don't want to see Charisma Carpenter as the new Jessica in a new murder she wrote. It's not going to work. You yeah. need you need some of these roles are made for senior citizens, you know? Yeah. Well, when they were talking about rebooting Murder she wrote, it was with a 41-year-old and she was a nurse, not a writer. Oh, man, I didn't even know they were thinking about rebooting Murder, She Wrote. That's ridiculous. They announced it, and it did not get any traction whatsoever <laughs> in the fan response, so it went nowhere. Anybody want, oh, yeah, what the fan response? Like, who's on, what of the fans are online? No offense to the elderly that know how to have cracked the internet code, but it's been my own experience that that's a rarity, so. <laughs> well, you know what, it's, it. obviously none of these have been released yet, but I have already recorded the episode of this show with Murder, She Wrote, and... When they were nice. describing the new one, was your nana was your nana the uh, the expert on that show? <laughs> no offense. <laughs> no, she wasn't that one. It was actually someone else from my high school brought her son in, and we introduced him to it for the first time. Oh, that's cute. That's so, nice. Hey, man. By the way, Murder She Wrote is fine. Again, very nice oh, yeah. detective procedural. There's nothing wrong with Murder She Wrote. It ran <laughs> for ten years for a reason, or however many years it was. Yeah, it was twelve seasons and four made-for-TV movies. <laughs> 264 know, episodes, and but when you're rebooting it, I mean, the original concept, she was a retired English teacher who turned to writing novels in her retirement sure. and ended up solving mysteries while she was on her book tours and whatnot. 41. You reboot it as a 41-year-old divorcee who's a nurse. <laughs> I'm like, where does the she wrote part come in? Sometimes well. it seems to be... Because you know, she wasn't writing anything. There was no novelist. She was just the nurse. It, it felt like... Well, J.K. Rowling, you know, shame on us. I mean, you know, I guess it's possible. Yeah, it'd be one thing if the character was, you know, she was working as a nurse now but wanted to get into writing or something. It's just one of those reboots that felt like we've paid for this name that'll sell tickets, so let's slap this name on an unrelated property. Well, I just, today, I don't know what kind of television... Well, I guess Blue Bloods, right off the bat, comes to mind. But I was going to say where... You've got a senior citizen uh, main star, and and seriously, maybe I'm maybe I'm just blanking and being stupid. And when I say senior citizen, I literally mean Tom Selleck is over sixty, so that counts. You know, like yeah, and that's um, getting made because he's paying for it. There's no guarantee right. it would have someone well, his age if he wasn't paying for it. Well, but it, but it also clearly has an audience, and it's a good show. It is a good show, and uh, he's still he's great. I love I love I still love Tom Selleck. I'll come to see Tom Selleck act. You know, I I haven't seen it, so I'm not judging quality. I'm just saying. I don't believe the current TV market would have tried it if the, the major funder wasn't saying, no, this is what it takes. He wants to be part of it, and he just had to pay for it himself. So he so he self-produced that before? You know, like, I mean, because a lot of times, obviously, you know, they, they list producers as, you know, or stars yeah. as producers, and that's kind of part of the deal. But yeah. did he bring it to them? Did he bring this concept to them? It, it, that's what I'm hearing is that he, okay. he shopped it around in that and his um, – there's a, a series of westerns as well where he loved the novels and he was oh, the major sure. force getting them made. 
Well, and also uh, Robert Parker's other male detective character beyond Spencer, Spencer for Hire, was uh, Jesse Stone. And, you know, for the last five or six years, uh, hell, actually, I think for the last 10 years, Selleck has been making those uh, TV movies as well. And and actually, shame on me, because the very network that Blue Bloods has and had Murder, She Wrote, it seems CBS is that last one that says uh, senior citizens watch television. And by the way, they buy products. So maybe it's a good idea to have some some programming where I know that guy. I'm going to watch him. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> like I said, NBC and Matlock, I think, might have been the last example of NBC. But uh, and by the way, another another CBS elderly detective and a, a familiar face uh, diagnosis murder. I, I uh, avoided it for years until I heard Dick Van Dyke say, yeah, you know, it's kind of like uh, what if Rob Petrie uh, became a detective in his 60s and 70s? And I'm like. I'd watch Rob Petrie be a detective. That sounds great. And yeah. I, and it unfortunately didn't live up to the hype, but, it, you know, it was good enough. Okay. It's still Dick Van Dyke. But we digress. Well, it's <laughs> it's on the list. It's one I, I found the complete series for $40 at Walmart. Oh, yeah, that's, uh, that's cool. What, yeah, uh, twice as much as Kolchak, but that's because it's like eight seasons instead of one. So. And several TV movies as well. Yep, those are included. So That's hilarious. Does he do commentary for the episodes? I haven't checked that. I don't know if there's bonus okay. features in these because these are like Walmart exclusive, low cost repackagings. I understand. That uh, that's true. Yeah. That, so. yeah, the blessing curse of Walmart. I understand. I just heard about uh, a Blu-ray of Ray Bradbury's Fahrenheit 451 that will date this episode depending on when it's released. Uh, but uh, that was seven years ago. Huh? <laughs> it, yeah, it's going to be a while before this gets released. I have to tinker with the final sequence, but uh, oh, oh, please, man! I, I told you I'm behind on my shows too. So yeah, so just to, to pull back the curtain a bit, we are actually recording this on the 20th anniversary of Buffy the TV series. So oh, fantastic! That's cool. And again, another show that I think can probably trace its lineage. I've never, I don't, I got to meet Joss Whedon for like 10 minutes once, and certainly talking about the Night Stalker never came to mind. But I would, I would suspect that Joss Whedon is likely a Night Stalker fan as well. It, he seems to be that era. He's he's a third-generation TV writer, and the, the first That's true autograph too. he cared enough about to get his dad to make sure he got. I mean, his grandfather wrote for Andy Griffith on the Andy Griffith show well before Matlock. Yeah, that's cool. But he, he made his dad drive him 45 minutes to get Stan Lee's autograph. That was the first one he got. <laughs> that's funny. And I can see a lot of the uh, the... Ditko Lee era Spider Man story structure in those first couple seasons of Buffy, where that's know, good. Yeah, each installation you've got a new monster, but the personal life marches on. It just feels so identical. Very interesting. Very no, that's an interesting comparison. I can appreciate that. Very cool. I you know I'm trying to think of other, like I said, the Moonstone books. Absolutely, go read them because especially uh, the the novels and short stories because again they they. Uh, they understand this character, and and also if you want to you know test it out by all means, right now like I said they're on YouTube. I would say check them out. I would say watch the first television film, as well as you know this episode obviously which was ranked so high. Uh, but if you've got the time, definitely the first the first TV pilot is excellent as well. Yeah, and it's, I mean one of the things that we'd like to talk about in this podcast, of course, is does this episode make a good first episode for new viewers? I would say so. Yeah, it's. We look at it from two ends. Does it make sense if it's watched in isolation? I can personally say, yeah. It's been so long since I saw the pilot movie that, yeah, I wouldn't guarantee that I've remembered anything clearly from it. But 
Now, if you've listened so far to this conversation, you've heard enough of the backstory and status quo. You'll have no problems picking it up. Agreed. The other element, is it representative of the series as a whole? And that's one that John would speak to more than I would, but I think you've already covered a fair amount yeah. of that, just to the natural course of the conversation. Yeah, like I said, the, the only thing missing is a stronger police uh, uh, character. Uh, but other than that, I think this is your classic kind of thing. And also, again, uh, without spoiling anything, uh, if you if you you know want to see it as spoiler free uh, that, as this conversation is allowed so far, the key that it's people that are trusted by uh, their uh, by the victims. That's how the monster gets them, and uh, it's it's fun to see who Carl trusts, and it shouldn't be a surprise, but. It is kind of because Kolchak really seems to be a person that uh, feels like the whole world really is kind of scum. And, you know, unfortunately, with his current station in, in life, probably doesn't have a high, high opinion of, of anybody. And it's interesting to discover the one person that he does clearly trust. It does. And this is, you know, he went after he said, oh, I don't trust anybody. So he figured he was pretty much safe from this thing. Yep. Yep. So that's and I think that gets to the heart of uh, the character and discovering that he does have a heart. And in a lot of ways. Does it, it's that uh, one exception to the axiom that Kolchak doesn't trust anybody and hates the world and everything. So except for this person, you know, that's kind of cool. Yeah, and it, it does. Not again, no spoilers, but it does play out well. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it's an entertaining scene. So yeah, this is one that. Yeah, I, I could. De- I definitely say that. Yeah, if you're curious, you can pick it up. The two-hour pilot is probably the, the better place to start. Like John said, it's a pilot movie. If you don't have the full two hours, you could jump into this one. Absolutely. Yeah, and that's what I was going to say, too. The only thing I would say is time. Um, again, the locale is different, and his job is slightly different, but you could, it's still... It's funny, Vincenzo, uh, they, they, they obviously liked Simon Oakland so much, another great character actor who go through his IMDb, and he's certainly in the Twilight Zone and several great... Uh, television shows and and a mil- a dozens if not hundreds of television shows uh so surprising but yeah yes and of course psycho shame on me yes no just so many great great uh, performances and really they are the classic uh you know uh person of authority that Kolshak loves to utz the most and that's their their scenes together are always great you know it's they're very Lou, you know he's very Lou Grant like in the best possible ways uh Tony Vincenzo yeah, he to to compare it to MacGyver here. If you've a fan of MacGyver, you know that you know Dana Alcar was MacGyver's supervisor at the Department yep. of External Affairs, and then when they moved to the Phoenix Foundation, they moved together. It's same sort of thing. Or you know, to go back to comics, starts off with you know Lois Lane and and Clark Kent working at the Daily Star, but again they go to the planet hand in hand. True, but there was also George Taylor at the Daily Star before there was Perry White. That's true. Yep, George Taylor stayed behind at the Star, which I think was—I <laughs> don't think it was deliberate. They just started with George Taylor at the Star. Didn't mention him by name or the paper by name for a few months worth of the comics. <laughs> then the radio show forgot. said it was the Planet, and it was Perry White. So, oh, really? Is the Planet? Uh, did that first happen on radio? Yep. That's cool. So did Jimmy. I knew about Jimmy. I knew about Kryptonite. Yeah, the Daily Planet and Perry White were in there. And Jimmy's, well, Jimmy's physical description came from the comics because they're, they were writing that sort of goofy redheaded guy with the bow tie that the Fleischer cartoons named Lewis into the comics oh, for a while. Oh, that's I forgot about that. Yep, yep, yep. Yep, and in, in the, um, 
Yeah, in the radio show when Jimmy was first introduced, he's actually described as a strapping blonde boy. <laughs> but then they drop that description for a while and just call him Jimmy. They don't need to describe him. Sure. You know, so then there was this character running around in the comics, and people were apparently running in the comics going, where's Jimmy? So they decided, oh, yeah, that guy we've been putting in the background, that's Jimmy. Okay, we'll run with it. Hey, man, uh, you know, everyone laughs at those Jimmy Olsen comic books and stuff, but when they were when they debuted, huge, huge, because oh, yeah. of, obviously, the popularity of the show. And, uh, you know, that's... It's I really like the first, if I may have a quick Superman tangent, mentioning the radio show as well. Robert Maxwell, who was behind the radio show in the first couple seasons of the uh, of the television show. There's a big difference, like the Phyllis Coates year and oh, yeah. uh, the black and white years in general. And I mean, really, it was a, it had a much more serious tone, taking nothing away from the color episodes. They're fun and they're silly and it's a kid show. And you got to remember that it's always you know supposed to be a kid show, but it was much more of a kid's action show. Uh, in the in those first years and and the radio show as well and it's uh it's it's very important to the Superman mythos but uh, good writing as well for its time yeah and even the TV show I mean it's Amy Adams is I think the only one who's come close to Phyllis Coates as Lois Lane here that's fair yeah I would agree yeah that first season apparently their their mission statement was to do a half hour crime movie every week there you go and that first go. season fulfilled that by the time you get to season six. It's much more consistent with the comics that you got in the days when Superman's pal Jimmy Olsen was outselling Superman, even though he somehow didn't yes. get top billing in his own book. It was Superman's pal Jimmy Olsen. Yeah, but still, hey man, again, it's you know, kid kid sidekicks were the craze of comics and then tell radio and television, and uh, yeah, no, Jimmy was huge, and and in fact, you know that terrible story about Jimmy Olsen that uh, post George Reeves' death. They actually considered make going on using stock footage of George Reeves and building new episodes around Jimmy. And and thankfully Jack um, and now I'm blanking. Uh, the are the act, the actor that played Jimmy and stuff is like uh, no, <laughs> I'll, I'll pass. And apparently they that was a plan that they already had in motion for season seven with George Reeves because the guy who played Perry White had passed away. Oh yes, another another amazing character actor. Yes who I, I'm, I'm always shocked to see in early 30s uh, crime movies. Great Caesar's Ghost. Good stuff, man. Come on, Jack. What, what the hell's his last name? We're going to have to look it up. I'm, it's already loading because it's bothering me, too. <laughs> it's not Jack Riley. Larson. Jack Larson. Thank you. My yes. God. Who, man, had the most interesting post-Superman career, writing, you know, librettos for, for musicals and operas and stuff in New York. And being a very accomplished uh, New York uh, actor and, and behind-the-scenes man as well. And, you know, he's popped up in the occasional Law & Order, but uh, the, his best was uh, being in that Lois and Clark episode when, yeah. he was, uh, when, he, when he was old Jimmy Olsen after young Jimmy was turned old. And thank God Jack Larson could play Jimmy Olsen again. Yeah, and he was the bartender in Superman Returns. Oh, yeah. That's okay. Yeah, that was fine. Yeah. I, 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 thought, uh, I thought they gave... Uh, Noel Neal, uh, a bit more meat to uh, play with, making her uh, super Luther's lover. <laughs> yep. Yeah, Noel Neal being the the woman who stepped in as Lois after Phyllis Coates was unavailable, because that's... We'll get into this in more detail in the Adventures of unavailable. Superman podcast, but none of, the, none of the cast thought that the first season was going to get picked up. It got picked up very late, and Phyllis Coates was already under contract to do other jobs. So did your episode for for Superman was it a uh, is it a first season episode or is it one of the later ones? I hope it's Superman on Earth. I hope it's the pilot. Actually, it's going to 
tell you that I'm recording these out of order because if everything goes as planned, that would have been the last episode I that we've released immediately before this one. Interesting. But no, it's actually uh, Season 6, Episode 12, The Perils of Superman. Oh, that's a good one, too, from an action standpoint. I can appreciate that. That's a... That is that is one of the better color episodes. That's true. Yeah, had it been up to me, I'd have picked Crime Wave from season one. But very good one. I, I like that one as well. I love the one, and I can't remember the title of it, where the meteor has the kryptonite on it, and it's heading for Earth. And that's yeah. a black and white one. Uh, and and despite it being black and white, is it, well, again, we we think the writing was better in those early episodes. And uh, you know, the effects are kind of kind of crazy, but again, it's you know, nineteen fifty one, cut them some slack, or fifty two, whatever it was. Yeah. It was also a, the the early seasons they were aiming for an older target audience. They didn't know that it was gonna be uh Frosted Flakes as a sponsor yet. So Oh, that's interesting. I, I didn't realize that it was maybe intended initially not to be a kid's show. Oh. I kind of thought it was from the start. Given that uh that's weird because again, um you know, a lot of this stuff and it's same producer I mean, it was a kid's show on radio, and 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 Kellogg and Kellogg's was its sponsor on radio. It was when they brought it to TV. Kellogg's was kind of getting out of the sponsorship game, oh. and they actually had the entire first season filmed and done, but they didn't have a sponsor lined up. So they sat on wow. it for over a year before they finally got a sponsor. And comic book fans back then, DC owned the series. Yeah. National Comics did own the series, and I mean that, and it was a huge moneymaker for them at a, at a time when, you know, uh, as as the fifties continued and uh, the Wortham uh, uh, comic book scare of juvenile delinquency in comic books really hurt a lot of publishers and stuff. Uh, Superman was able to keep going strong, uh, and and I'm sure part of it was as well the fact that they had a successful television series and could, you know, and then that's another reason why the stories got goofy too, uh, and and in fact. It's likely that that's why the television show got goofy, uh, because of that concern about juvenile delinquency as well. Yeah, it wouldn't surprise me. They were aiming younger. That's why there's – well, that's part of the reason some of those those stories got so crazy in the 50s is to make sure it was appropriate for the young kids. They started soliciting cover ideas from the six, seven, and eight-year-olds in the audience. So it's, hey, it came from a seven-year-old. It's fine for seven-year-olds. What if Superman has an ant head? Sounds great. We're going to write a story behind that. Thank you, Johnny. <laughs> Well, whatever. Yes. It, it kept the comics alive when that wasn't a, a guarantee. Right. No, that's what I mean. It's it's very interesting. Um, yeah, uh, there's uh, there are books out there to research in terms of the production of that Superman series and its importance to uh, the publisher, uh, National Comics, back then. Oh, yeah. But again, we digress. Um, yeah, there you go. Yeah, so actually, as far as Kolchak is concerned, I think we've covered... Everything on our outline except the final thank yous and directing people to your podcasts online. Uh, thanks, man. Wordballoon.com. I uh, do one-on-one -on -one interviews with uh, pop culture people, uh, usually mostly comic book uh, people, but also the occasional uh, novelist and um, television person and animation person and film person when I'm lucky and uh, happy to bring it every week. Uh, just come to Wordballoon.com. Okay. Yeah, and... You'll also hear him on uh, All Yeah Comics as often as that podcast is produced. That's true. Now, you know, we, we time that with the Farmer's Almanac, so we're not due technically until the beginning of spring, so we still got a little wiggle room. Well, that's okay. If, the, if this show comes out uh, in, on the sequence I'm, I'm planning, this episode will air on uh, November 23rd, 2021. So... <laughs> 
wait a minute. All right, so I will be 2021. So that's in four years. I'll be 56. That's one, or at 55. Uh, I hope I'm saving lives at 55. That's beautiful. Yeah, that'll be a few days before my sister's birthday. I won't say which one because she'll kill me. <laughs> and I'll have wow. just turned 46. So, but that's I'm gonna have to jump in my time after time HG Wells uh, machine and uh, and uh, hear it uh, in a in a few minutes to hear how we did. Well, we'll we'll discuss it. I gotta decide. The original plan for airing it would have been, you know, sort of increasing with the average quality of the series, but. I've still got about 25 series that I don't have guest hosts for, so I may start releasing them more in the order I get them recorded instead. Okay. <laughs> in which case, this will be early 2018. Well, again, we're talking about a show from 44 years ago as of this recording. I'm sure it will be just as vital uh, when it's 47 years old or 48 years old, so that's fine. <laughs> It's a good show. Hey, man, guess what? It's, it is in current syndication. It, they are selling DVDs of it. So clearly there's a fan base for it, and I do think uh, it is one of the more exceptional, uh, like I said, sci-fi horror, or uh, yeah, a little sci-fi, but mostly horror, comedy, uh, crime, crime procedural. Oh, yeah. Plus, no, your, your attitudes towards film. My attitude is there's, you know, I think it's similar to yours if I can speak for you. There's great stuff from every era of film and TV. Absolutely. No question. And radio. Yep. Oh, definitely. We're actually recording this uh, nine days before Bureau 42 releases, or starts releasing Dimension X, because I haven't found a podcast that does every episode in sequence, so I'm just doing one. Download them from archive.org, and I'm pumping them out every Sunday wow, for the rest of the year. Wow, good for you, man. Yeah, why not? That's so funny. That stuff is, those shows are great uh, for Westerns, Gunsmoke, on radio, mm -hmm. I believe is superior to the television show and the television show ran for 22 years. But, uh, I think, uh, I think the gun, the radio show is, is much better. Uh, Dragnet is incredible on radio. It's fine on television and even goofy. That's LSD, man. Feel real high. Don't you punk? You know, that stuff, that's great. But in the fifties, Joe Friday was right along the times and it's yeah. a very uh, intense fifties, uh, police procedural and stuff. So there are, there is great old time radio, just as there's great film and great television. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. And Dragnet is currently running every Saturday and Adam Graham's, uh, in his, uh, the great detectives of old time radio series. Oh, that's cool. That's, that's great. No, yeah. I, you know, yeah, he's got Johnny dollar every Friday. And... Another great show. Big fan of Johnny dollar, the man with the action packed expense account. Oh, yeah. America's fabulous freelance investigator. It's a big fan, especially those five-part episodes that are 15 minutes. Something else you can find on YouTube and, of course, like you said, archive.org. But they're like mini-movies. Those, yeah. are, those are tremendous. Those are, yeah. And Adam has actually gone through all of those. He's, in the, he's still in the Bob Bailey era, but they're back to the half hours. Ah, well, soon he'll be experiencing uh, its uh, final uh, roundup on Johnny Dollar with Mendel Kramer. Yeah, <laughs> he's the man. Who, he's the man who closed out uh, the series back in '62. Yeah, he's not too far from that. I think he's in the the late '50s right now. Sure. No, I I I know the era, and yeah, if it's the post, it's post uh, five days a week at 15 minutes, but in the half hour days. And then also because you know a lot of stations were carrying news, so uh, in the Mandel Kramer years and stuff, you'll have 19 minute episodes and 20 minute episodes because they likely had uh, you know they followed. Uh, top of the hour or bottom of the hour newscasts and stuff. 
Yeah. So, uh, no, Johnny, Johnny Dollar and, uh, was it Suspense were the last two, uh, they radio were? shows? I believe those are the two. Yeah. 1962. Yeah. They're usually considered the end of the golden age of radio because their final episodes aired back to back. I don't know if you've ever heard Theater 5 or are aware of Theater 5. Uh, not that one. I've heard a lot of suspense. I've... Theater 5 came three years after 62, and it was ABC's attempt to see if there was still any interest in, in radio drama. And it's an interesting show. Those are also 20 minutes long, but Alan Alda did an early Theater 5, and they made like 200 or so episodes. Um, they had to yank them from the radio, though, because they the source music that they used as as a soundtrack for the episodes they realized they didn't have the rights for it so they oh. had to yank the entire series oh, but it was five days a week and it and it would try tried every genre even comedies but it mostly did adventure and mystery and a little bit of not too much horror a little bit a little bit of science fiction um but um no they're 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 okay they're interesting and worth listening to uh and there are certainly episode guides and i would say if you're interested in the subject it's it's worth checking out the uh, the specific episodes. And like I said, fun to hear people like Alan Alda very early in their career uh, doing a radio acting job. Yeah, you hear a lot of that. You, the number of times that Alan Reed, the voice of Fred Flintstone, has popped up as a guest star in these detective shows is hilarious. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, and, and William Conrad, of course, canon. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, there's a guy that you know, at Jake and the Fat Man, and I think for unfortunately his television work is mostly known as being a fat guy. Meanwhile, on radio, he was one of the he's the George Clooney of all time radio. I mean, he really was. I don't know in terms of looks, but in terms of compelling leading man who could, you know, just a booming voice. And, and I mean, his medium was radio and it was is such a uh, an incredible radio actor, uh, both mostly in mostly in uh, drama. But uh, the occasional comedy, and of course the narrator of Rocky and Bowwinkle. Oh yeah, and it's, while we're talking old time radio, I'm going to strongly recommend The Saint, especially the Vincent Price years. Yep, he blew me good away. Thing. No, great show, good call, man. There you go. There's All right, good there stuff. we go. I think, we, I think we've given some good recommendations beyond I think our, so. our love for Kolchak the Night Stalker. Well, I hope you enjoy the rest of the series. Um, it is it is worth going you know through the whole thing. So you know, I definitely as will. Time allows. Very good. I mean, like I said, the, the influence on the X-Files is clear right down to the, the green typewriter letters in the opening credits. <laughs> <laughs> they, they, the font was right from there, so. This is true. Yeah, there's major influences. So anyway, John, thanks again for coming on. And listeners, check out wordballoon.com and check out the Ah oh Yeah podcast. Where John appears with uh, Art Balthazar and Franco, who are known for making some great comics that are genuinely all ages. <laughs> there's, working at a theater, I learned that there's two kind of all ages movies. There's the ones like Toy Story and like the Oh yeah comics that are genuinely all ages. Children and parents come out enjoying them. The other kind is the kind where, you know, the kid, you ask the kids how it was, they tell you it was great. You ask the parents how it was, they grit their teeth and say, the kids really loved it. <laughs> this is true. This is very true on both counts. No, uh, yeah, Art and Franco are very funny writers, and their books are fun and uh, legitimately funny and also uh, safe for kids, but uh, adults will enjoy them as well. Yeah, and they, they actually do things I still can't believe. There's, uh, you know, kind of like the Green Lantern writers, like Len Wein says, you know, as soon as he saw all the different color spectrum in the Jeff Johns era of Green Lantern, he's going, oh, of course, why didn't I think of that? It fits so beautifully. 
Yeah. They did that in a moment of Superman Family Adventures. They're, when they put together two unrelated concepts that, you know, Jor-El was trying to save his family, and Jor-El was the one who found access to the Phantom Zone. I won't say anymore, That's, but they go places that go. nobody else had gone where they really should have gone. It's one of those... No, you're 100% right, and forgive me for stepping on you. But yeah, Arden Franco's uh, work on uh, Tiny Titan speaks for itself, but I think once they got Superman, and even their, uh, what now is a current series, Superpowers, uh, they, are, they are swinging for the fences and telling their best Superman stories, their best Justice League stories, and uh, yeah, they're, they're, they're uh, again, safe for kids, but as far as they're concerned, they're writing the Justice League and they're writing Superman, and then, like you said, the Superman family... And uh, they're doing it quite well. 